Welcome to the Awakened Apes podcast. I'm your host, Alex Padrone. And my promise to you today is that today's episode will be the best episode ever. Today, I'd like to talk about the shadow. I believe we have a social responsibility to familiarize ourselves with the parts of ourselves that we wish to defamiliarize ourselves with. One reason why we're not familiar with our own shadows is because it leads to a painful realization that we wish to ignore and avoid because it makes understanding the world so much simpler if we don't acknowledge this. And that's that some of the most despicable traits that we notice in others and dislike in others exists within us. And it's our inability to acknowledge this that makes it so that when we notice these traits in others, we condemn them, we separate ourselves from them and reject them. And in turn, what we're actually doing is rejecting ourselves in the presence of them because we're not in touch with the parts of ourselves that are being reflected back at us through them. Whenever we refuse to accept our feelings and thoughts, however disturbing they might be, we experience psychological dissonance. Dissonance happens when our behavior does not match our self-image or the image we think others might have of us. When we project our shadows onto others, we refuse ownership of ourselves, losing ourselves in the process. And here's the paradox. Getting in touch with the parts of us that we dislike most in others makes it so that we're more likable to others and more likable to ourselves. For today's episode, I'd like to give excerpts from a talk delivered by Carl Jung to Swiss clergymen. Here's Alan Watts on his take on Jung embracing his own dark side. He would not condemn the things in others and would therefore not be led into those thoughts, feelings, and acts of violence toward others, which are always characteristic of the people who project the devil in themselves upon the outside, upon somebody else, upon the scapegoat. This, according to Jung, is how neurosis finds a way to take over the psyche. And I'll describe neurosis here as anxiety, distress, and obsessive overthinking, so much so that it creates dysfunction in everyday tasks. Here's Carl sharing his wisdom with us. People forget that even doctors have moral scruples and that certain patients' confessions are hard even for a doctor to swallow. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted unless the very worst in him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes through reflection and through the doctor's attitude towards himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. 
whether he puts his judgment into words or keeps them to himself, makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also no use but estranges him as much as condemnation. Feeling comes only through unprejudiced objectivity. This sounds almost like a scientific precept, and it could be confused with a purely intellectual, abstract attitude of mind. But what I mean is something quite different. It is a human quality, a kind of deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them, and for the riddle of such a man's life. The truly religious person has this attitude. He knows that God has brought all sorts of strange and inconceivable things to pass and seeks in the most curious ways to enter a man's heart. He therefore senses in everything the unseen presence of the divine will. This is what I mean by unprejudiced objectivity. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor who ought not to let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say that we must never pass judgment when we desire to help and prove. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. Perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? What then? So that's a lot to take in. Jung here is referring to the elements and aspects of ourselves that we deny in ourselves. And in doing so, we deny them in others and reject others when we see them reflected back at us through our perceptions of others. This isn't an easy pill to swallow, and it speaks to our social responsibility as the beings that we are. Much like you'd recycle to take care of the planet. I view owning our projections and understanding our own shadows and uncovering what's there is a sort of social recycling that we're doing. We're taking care of, of each other by first taking care of ourselves. 
We have buried gifts, golden nuggets of wisdom and traits that if we embraced could propel us and help us grow in a manner that nothing else could. Here's Jung again. Then as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. There is then no more talk of love and long-suffering. We condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide the brother within us from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. And had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed. Everyone who uses modern psychology to look behind the scene not only of his patients' lives, but more especially of his own life, we admit that to accept himself in all his wretchedness is the hardest of tasks, and one which is almost impossible to fulfill. The very thought can make us sweat with fear. We are therefore only too delighted to choose, without a moment's hesitation, the complicated course of remaining in ignorance about ourselves while busying ourselves with other people and their troubles and sins. This activity leads us a perceptible air of virtue by means of which we benevolently deceive ourselves and others. God be praised, we have escaped from ourselves at last. There are countless people who can do this with impunity, but not everyone can. And these few break down on the road to their Damascus and succumb to a neurosis. How can I help these people if I myself am a fugitive? Only he who has fully accepted himself has unprejudiced objectivity. It's only when we've seen and accepted our own capacity for what we're fearful of, ashamed of, and judgmental of in ourselves that we can truly see others for who and what they are. Without accepting this in ourselves, we avoid the parts of others that remind us of these parts in ourselves. And we therefore can't create a genuine heart-to-heart -heart connection or express genuine compassion for another because we have none toward ourselves. And that's the paradox. Jung understood this deeply, and it's a part of the modern myth of man individuation, becoming who you are. You don't do that by keeping your shadows locked away and not looking at those parts of yourself that you don't yet love, but require the most love for them to share their gifts with you. Here's Alan Watts and his perspective on Jung. Jung was the sort of man who could feel anxious and afraid and guilty without being ashamed of feeling this way. In other words, he understood that an integrated person is not a person who has simply eliminated the sense of guilt or the sense of anxiety from his life, who is fearless and wooden and kind of sage of stone. He is a person who feels all these things, but has no recriminations against himself for feeling them. Alan Watts here is reflecting upon the fact that our emotions and our feelings have a right to life, if you will, 
we're allowed and we should express them rather than repress them and be okay with the fact that we feel the way we feel in any given moment rather than shame ourselves or condemn ourselves for feeling the way that we're feeling. It's that layered condemnation and that layered shame, that hidden shame, if you will, that is a true poison for our souls. I know it, it has been true for me in parts of my life where I've been spoon feeding myself poison by shaming myself for feeling guilt or shaming myself for being afraid. And Jung goes on to say that what happens in the psyche when we are ashamed of a part of ourselves and feel that that part shouldn't exist or should be different is that our psyches split in a sense. We become unwhole when we act as if a part of us isn't really us. When we want to hide a certain part of us from the eyes of the world, if you will. Here's Jung again. Neurosis is an inner cleavage, the state of being at war with oneself. Everything that accentuates this cleavage makes the patient worse, and everything that mitigates it tends to heal him. What drives people to war with themselves is the suspicion or the knowledge that they consist of two persons in opposition with one another. The conflict may be between the sensual and the spiritual man, or between the ego and the shadow. It is what Faust means when he says, two souls, alas, dwell in my breast apart. A neurosis is a splitting of personality. So in order for us to heal, the split in personality requires that we get in touch with our shadows and learn the uncomfortable truths about ourselves in the process. Now, this is not for the faint of heart. Individuation is the journey of a lifetime. It's the myth of the modern man, and it doesn't come without its perils. It doesn't come without realizations we wish to avoid at times. Jung here concludes, No doubt this also sounds very simple. In reality, however, the acceptance of the shadow side of human nature verges on the impossible. Consider for a moment what it means to grant the right of existence to what is unreasonable, senseless, and evil. So becoming whole is the path of individuation, of becoming authentic. And this is in stark contrast to doing things to meet the approval and expectations of others. In a sense, it's the complete opposite. Here's an exercise to practice being more authentic. Start with the assumption that most of the things you say and think aren't yours and that you don't believe them. They are just things you picked up for one reason or another. Imagine your own thoughts said by someone you just met in order to detach yourself from what you think and say. Stop blindly repeating the opinions of others. Realize that this is not you. Then start listening to what you say, and more importantly, start feeling what you say. Then remind yourself of this simple rule. Pay attention to whether what you say makes you feel stronger or weaker. If stronger, keep saying it. If weaker, 
like things coming apart in your midsection or feeling of disintegration, stop saying it right away. When you feel a psychological sensation of unsteadiness, stop immediately. Then carefully seek out words that are truthful. Reformulate them so that when you restate your thoughts, your feelings of integrity, strength, and authenticity reappears. You can actually feel this down the middle of your body. Saying something untrue gives you a feeling of weakness because you dissociate. Part of you agrees and another part disagrees, splitting your psyche. For example, saying things you don't believe in order to impress someone or to make sure you will continue to be accepted in a social order creates a mask behind which you feel you must hide. You want to avoid any falseness about your self-representation, lest you slip off into chaos, into a never-ending multiplicity of lies. But if you get your words right, you can feel yourself coming back into alignment. By following this exercise, you make your capacity to pay attention superordinate to your capacity to speak. Attention is a higher function than intellect, since attention teaches intellect. So pay very careful attention to what you say. Try to articulate what you believe to be true as carefully as possible. Then accept the outcome. Assume that your truth as lived and spoken will produce the best possible outcome. It's an act of faith, yes, but so is every other way of being. In this way, you're centered in your being so you can withstand life's suffering without being corrupted. This is the source of a meaningful existence. To withstand the onslaught of life, you will have to learn how to speak from the bottom of your soul. There's nothing better than this. This is reflected when Carl Rogers said, this process of the good life is not, I am convinced, a life for the faint-hearted. It involves the stretching and growing of becoming more and more of one's potentialities. It involves the courage to be. It means launching oneself fully into the stream of life. So the myth of a modern man to individuate requires some real self-assessment and an encounter with the parts of us that we hate most about ourselves or wish we didn't have. In order to work with our shadows requires we take a heavy dose of humbleness. I view doing shadow work and trying to integrate our shadows as a moral effort. And this is reflected in Jung's work in Ion. It requires an encounter with these truths about us that we wish weren't true. So Jung emphasized that an individual's proper goal is wholeness, not perfection. What is it that you deny or repress? What traits of yours were shunned or frowned upon by your friends or your family? What traits were punished? In adapting to the civilized social world that we're a part of, we are forced to repress, typically speaking, things like anger, our more primal animalistic instincts, but also the things in us that were perceived as threatening to others. Things like our assertiveness, our creativity, and maybe even our competitiveness or ambition. 
Jung writes, the integration of the shadow leads to disobedience, but also to self-reliance, without which individuation is unthinkable. So to become aware of our shadows, it's conceptualized intellectually. And then through introspection and reflection, we uncover what our shadows are made up of. And eventually we might even hit a conflict because a portion of our personality is going to be at odds with the family values that we were raised up to hold and to believe, or at least the values that a part of us think are the right values to hold and believe. Here's Eric Neumann on The Shadow. Man has to realize that he possesses a shadow, which is the dark side of his own personality, if only for the reason that he is so often overwhelmed by it. And this, of course, reflects Carl Jung when Carl says, by not being aware of having a shadow, it enters the kingdom of the non-existent, which swells up and takes enormous proportions. If you get rid of qualities you don't like by denying them, you become more and more unaware of what you are and declare yourself more and more non-existent, and your devils grow fatter and fatter. Out in the world, most people appear as conscientious and good-doing, but behind closed doors, their shadows turn them into puppets, unconscious victims of addictions, strange compulsions, and irrational fits of anger. The amount of consciousness that you have access to is contingent upon the degree to which you can integrate your shadows. When a shadow is formed, it takes a piece of your consciousness and pulls it into unconsciousness. It's in part why when you notice yourself or others having these reactive behaviors, they will in part turn into the seven-year-old version of themselves and play out those reactive behaviors, say through things like anger. It's because these components of aggression and anger haven't been fully integrated into their consciousness. That seven-year-old unconscious material will come out. And so as a way to expand consciousness, if you will, integrating your shadows is necessary to reclaim that consciousness back. So if the split off happens at age seven, you could have seven-year-old desires that kind of start coming back up when the shadows expressed. So not only do you tend to get stuck at lower levels of consciousness, but the higher levels of consciousness remain inaccessible until we reclaim that lost bit of consciousness from the unconscious itself. An example of a, a shadow that typically isn't integrated is our aggression. So one might approach this by first accepting and taking seriously the existence of the shadow, and then becoming aware of its qualities and intentions, paying attention to things like your mood and your impulses and the fantasies you might have. And third, by creating a longstanding negotiation with yourself, finding a safe outlet to express your aggression productively and to connect with it through things like martial arts, for instance. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a perfect example of this because it allows one to be aggressive with an opponent. You literally have and go into a fight with someone else and both of you come out of it without any head trauma, which is great for things like thinking. Other possibilities 
include being more assertive in your decision-making, more assertive in your behavior and standing your ground when you're tested by family members and coworkers, for instance. And an important disclaimer here is that it's important not to overcompensate in our behavior as we undergo this process of integration. The goal in integrating something like your aggression isn't to become a bad person, but to tap into the necessary energies to sculpt your character more fully, to become capable of acting with force, but not to become forceful, to be able to stand up for ourselves and in what we believe in. As Eric Neumann put it, the acceptance of the shadow involves a growth in depth into the ground of one's own being. A new depth and rootedness and stability is born. And in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, of all evil I deem you capable. Therefore I want the good from you. Truly I have often laughed at weaklings who thought themselves good because they had no claws. Wow. You can always count on Screechy Nietzsche for a mic drop, can't you? So here's a, a shadow integration method developed by, I believe, Freud and popularized by Ken Wilber. Imagine a person who's upset you, who's offended you in some way. And if you can't think of anyone, here are two examples of individuals who act as a lightning rod for shadow projections. Donald Trump and Ibram X. Kendi the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. So no matter what side you're on, you can pick your poison here. Whoever upsets you most is who you should engage with if you can't think of anyone in your own life who's offended you lately. So imagine yourself in a situation with your offender now and imagine yourself as a fly in the wall, just looking at the situation play out. And to do this, I recommend you find and create some stillness, find a place where you won't be distracted, away from people in your phone for a while and imagine that situation being played out. Then imagine switching your perspective from the third person to the second person. What I mean by this is imagine stepping into a conversation with your offender and actually begin having a dialogue with your offender. Then the final step of the process is to step into the shoes of the offender themselves, into the first person point of view. You may even realize that your own shadow is what's being projected out of them. Realizing that the criticism you have of your offender is the criticism you have about yourself in the presence of your offender. So in a sense, your offender is acting as a mirror and they're reflecting back at you what you're projecting out of them. And as they say, if you spot it, you got it. And that's very much at the heart of this concept here. And you might even realize in doing this that what we're doing all the time is clobbering each other over the head and ourselves with our repressed shadows. We project them out when we spot them in others, and then we blame others for what truly we blame ourselves and dislike in ourselves. And this leads to so much misunderstanding and confusion. And I am of the opinion that our political and cultural climate today would be so much more different if we took it upon ourselves to take responsibility for our own shadows, 
cleaning up the parts of ourselves that we reject and even hate. Because when we then see that out in the world, it's our own hatred and our own inability to accept ourselves that we're reacting to. We can't then create a compassionate connection with someone who we can relate to. So that's it for today, my friends. I hope you can sleep after all this. And I know I may not. And if you can't, blame either Carl or Nietzsche here. But before you do, try this 3-2-1 method and try to integrate whatever it is that I've offended you with. Try to spot your own shadows and try to clean up your own psychological dirty dishes, if you will. I know I will be. So until next time, friends, hope you've enjoyed this trip down the Jungle and take care, you young boys and girls. Thank you.